start recording. <laughs> Hello, Dad. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good to be back with you. Yes. All right. So... Hey, who are you? Oh, yeah. So something we realized that we haven't been doing is introducing the podcast or ourselves, which is just a rookie mistake. But guess what? That's what we are. We're rookies. We're new at this. So welcome to the Family Crime Cast. We are your hosts. I'm Mariah Honaker. And I'm Bob Honaker. And that is who we are. (laughs) This is what we're doing. Yes, we are. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you haven't listened to the first part, this is actually a two-part episode. This is the second part. Go back, listen to the first part of this episode uh, or of this story because you're going to need some information from that. Right. Exactly. To, to get to, to know what's going on in this. Or episode. you can listen to this one and then go back and listen to the first yeah, one, but it'll be out of order. It would be out of order. You'd probably be really confused. And uh, yeah, it's a really ex- last week episode. I really liked it. Besides, I know you didn't like the cursing, Dad. So uh, sorry about that. I was a little upset about that. But I'll, I'll try to refrain from cursing as much in this episode. I'll try to. Thank you. Yes, no problem. It's just for you, Dad. <laughs> For no one else. (laughs) But yeah, oh, so we are going to be having a guest on our next episode. We're super excited. We're going to have Jerry Hamlin on. Jerry Hamlin has worked with my dad in the prosecutor's office for several years. Can you tell us anything else about Jerry? Jerry, uh, I initially started working with him when he was... uh, a officer in Long Branch for many years. After he retired from Long Branch, he became head of our special projects unit in the prosecutor's office. I teamed with him and Louis Jordan for many years, presenting to high schools and other different community groups about various aspects of bias crimes. We trained a lot of police officers in regards to uh, interaction with uh, minority communities, and uh, it seems that at this time that it might be a good idea for us to get together and start talking about some of the issues that we faced uh, maybe 20 years ago, but obviously are still there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that we talk about how to train, you know, police officers in situations with minorities, and then we're here now today presented with there's there's still clearly our issues and clearly there's there's things that need to change need to be done and i I can't wait to have that conversation with jerry and 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 see how he feels about the current events happening right and jerry used to have his own uh show on brookdale television which is our local community college youth family and the law and uh, he brought me on on many occasions to talk about the issue so It'll be good to see Jerry again and and, uh, engage in a great conversation. I can't wait for that. It's going to be a really, really great episode, so stay tuned for that. So a little summary of last week's episode. Again, go back and listen if you did not listen to a part one, but a little quick little summary is Donald Franks. So Donald Franks murdered his family friend, Andrea Healy, and he murdered her in cold blood because she kicked him out of his apartment condo she was like you're gone and and his 16 year old girlfriend you're both gone and they didn't actually leave and and when she came back to the apartment she tried to call the cops and say hey can you send somebody over and during the time of of her making that phone call and actually a police officer arriving she was murdered and they you know ditched the body in a woods in Cape May County and Kimberly at one point they were pulled over and Kimberly was released into custody of her parents Donald Franks was kind of on the lam but when Kimberly was telling the detectives everything that went down. Donald Franks gives a phone call to Kimberly 
and detectives are able to trace that phone call to a payphone. They arrest him. They take him into custody. He uh, admits that he killed her and where the body is. And then he's officially charged. And that is when the death penalty committee meets and they decide if there are aggravating factors to proceed with the death penalty, which they do. So that's kind of where this episode picks up. Uh, we're going into trial, and and there's a death penalty. Right. So the after his arrest, which was in May of 1988, he then was taken into custody, and he was uh, detained in the Monmouth County Jail in lieu of $350,000 bail. Wow. Uh, the death penalty committee then met to discuss whether or not there's any aggravating factors in the case. And clearly there was an aggravating factor that he burglarized the condominium and that as a result he committed a felony murder, which of course was an aggravating factor. So, right. If you remember that from our Joseph Taylor case, that is also same, why. Yeah, yeah. Same factor. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. Same factor. And so once we determined that there was an aggravating factor that we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt, then we certified the aggravating factor. And what occurred at the time is at the arraignment, which was now in July of 1988, where he received a copy of the charges, a grand jury had met and indicted him on charges of murder, felony murder, burglary, theft, and also possession of a weapon, a steak knife for an unlawful purpose. We presented him with the aggravating factor and notified the public defender's office that we intended to seek the death penalty in this case. Okay, so let's discuss what goes on during the time that he's in prison and before the trial. There seems to have been some, I don't know, some crazy shit went down. A lot of things that delayed the trial. First of all, in regards to Donald Franks, in the summer of 1989, he was found hanging in his jail cell. And he was taken to the hospital, came back okay, and was back in the Monmouth County Jail. However, his lawyers had indicated that because he had, in fact, attempted to kill himself, that he was now mentally deficient and unable to stand trial. Hmm. Essentially, that he was incompetent to stand trial. So... When that happens, they make a motion for a judge to determine whether or not he's competent, and we would have to contest it. We did not believe that Donald Franks was incompetent. Mm -hmm. We thought that this was something that he had manipulated, was trying to get out from under facing his charges. So what we did is we sent a couple of detectives over to the jail and presented him with papers indicating that we were going to have him examined by a psychiatrist in order to determine his competency. So they went over and they delivered the papers to him, and he was acting as if he was catatonic that he didn't understand that was what was going on. And again, we thought that this was just an act. And so the detectives, who were very good detectives at the time, John Musiello and uh, I think Mike Dowling, went uh, around the corner, waited a few minutes, and then came back and strolled by his cell and saw him actually reading the papers that they had just delivered right. to him. Right, so if he's catatonic and unable to speak you would presume he's unable to read and he's just reading what they just gave him. And listen, so from that point forward, we have the the jail guards monitoring him and they produced reports which indicated that he was conversing with the inmates and in fact, uh, on occasions were playing chess with some of the inmates. Now, 
you know, I'm not a chess player. I mean, that's above. Neither am I. <laughs> something we have in common. Yeah. Chess and, is not my game. And it's, it takes a great deal of skill and a great deal of. Uh, There's a int- lot of rules in that, that game yeah, and a yeah. lot of memorization that goes into it. Right. And you have to make moves and counter moves and all this other stuff. So it was a hotly contested competency hearing, but we were able to prevail at the competency hearing and the judge determined that he was in fact competent to stand trial. But that whole process took a period of time before we could actually get to trial. Another thing that happened was that he gave a interview to the Asbury Park Press. Mm-hmm. And in essentially in the interview, he confessed again to killing Andrea Healy. So I attempted to subpoena the reporter from the Asbury Park His Press. His lawyers must have hated him. <laughs> He, he talks to a publication and confesses? Yes, and it was like on the front page of the paper. Oh my God. I thought it was a statement against interest. It was admissible. Obviously, we had to confront the journalistic privilege, and we had a full-blown hearing, and the judge ruled that I could not use his statement to the Asbury Park Press. Hmm. And quite frankly, I was a little pissed. Yeah, you know? so I don't really understand how that works. I mean, if he had, say, confessed to his jail cellmate, could you have like subpoenaed him absolutely absolutely but the asbury park press obviously had these very good lawyers who knew the law concerning uh, the journalistic privilege and the judge ruled that i could not use it all right so you can't use it so i couldn't use it so 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 then (laughs) donald franks what does he do but he sends letters he sends two to me and one to the judge in the case. And what were the, what did they say? The letters essentially said, why can't I plead guilty and let's just go straight to the penalty phase. So he writes me this letter sometime, I think, the summer of 1990. And I, of course, based on the rules of discovery, turn it over to his defense attorney. Mm-hmm. So obviously they're not too happy that their client is writing to the prosecutor who's trying to put him on death row, saying that, why can't we just get to the chase? Yeah, let's just skip and it get, and, 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 and get it done. Get it done. So I turn it over to that, and he sends a second letter to me saying, I can't understand why you won't let me plead guilty. Obviously, it wasn't my choice. Right. Like, so why couldn't he plead guilty? He, he could have, but he would have then gone straight to the penalty phase, and he would have faced a death penalty. So it was more so like his defense team didn't. Well, his defense was that he didn't commit a murder. And that if he didn't commit a murder, then there would be no death penalty. Or that he didn't commit a burglary. And if there was no burglary, then there would be no death penalty. So they wanted to knock the death penalty out at the trial phase. Mm -hmm. Where if he pled guilty, then there would be no trial and he would go straight to the penalty phase. And all of the evidence that we would marshal in the trial phase would have been introduced in the penalty phase. So back to the letters real quick. Could you have used those in court? Yes, ultimately, we were able to use them. We had to have a hearing pre-trial, again, which delayed the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and the judge, uh, actually, he, he had one of the letters written to him. And as long as I could authenticate the letters, the judge had indicated that I would be able to introduce the relevant parts. There were some parts of the letters that he did not admit into evidence. But quite frankly, he allowed me to introduce some of uh, those letters. And there was some damning evidence that 
was in those letters that I utilized in my case against Donald Frank. Do you have any parts of those letters that you can read? Yes, sure. As a matter of fact, he wrote, I want to plead guilty. This is what he wrote to Mm -hmm. me. I want to plead guilty to all charges and avoid trial. I have no remorse for what I've done or any guilt. If I had the chance to do it all over again, I'd just make sure I wouldn't be caught alive this time. That's what he wrote to me. And he wrote to the judge, Kim Burdan, who was going to be a witness in this case, who we talked about last time, didn't make her do anything. You should have seen it. The murder scene, before I cleaned it up, blood everywhere, and the screaming, pretty intense, you know. So all of that evidence I was going to present to the jury to show that this, in fact, was a planned murder. So the judge admits those as evidence. They're, they're clear to enter the trial. Let's, let's get into the trial a little bit. I mean, the trial doesn't take place for a while. Clearly, you guys had all these hearings going on. When does the trial of, after the murder take place? So the trial doesn't start till December of 1990. So almost two and a half years after the death of Andrea Healy. And the trial begins and I had 40 witnesses that I presented during the course of the trial. So what was the defense? Like, what are they trying to prove at trial? Because it's obvious he did it in my eyes and, and he admits that he did it. So what, what are they saying happened? Well, again, they're not denying that he killed Andrea Healy. But then, again, if there's no murder, then there's no death penalty. So their first attack was on the murder charge. That was their defense. It wasn't murder. It was an argument between Donald Franks and Andrea Healy about the phone bill, about the fact that he had a 16-year-old girl who was a runaway with him. And that fight escalated into a situation where she died. So it wasn't murder. It was either manslaughter or aggravated manslaughter. The second one was to try to knock out the burglary charge. I mean, she did allow him to be in that apartment, in that condominium. So they said if he had access to that condominium, then there was no burglary charge. If there was no burglary charge, there would be no death penalty. And their third attack was on Kimberly Burdan, is that she was a liar and that she was as part of this as anybody else, and she's only testifying for the state to save her own position. Okay, so what evidence did you present at the trial to kind of rebuttal this defense? Well, we presented the manner of death of Andrea Healy. She was stabbed once in the back. She was stabbed three times directly to her chest. Two pierced her heart, one pierced her lung to show that this was an intentional act. Mm -hmm. This was a premeditated, purposeful, or knowing act. Number two is that it was clear from the evidence that we were going to present, particularly the fact that Andrea Healy had called the police, that she didn't want him in her condominium, that she had kicked him out and he was not authorized to be there. So that was, in essence, negating the defense attempt to throw out the burglary charge. And number three, in regards to Kimberly Burdan, you know, she was charged in the case. She was charged as an accessory and hindering his apprehension. And even though she may have not initially been candid with us, there was one thing that was clear, is that Donald Franks entered into that condo, crept into her bedroom, and stabbed and killed her. So let's talk about Kimberly Burdan's testimony. So this is two and a half years after the murder takes place. So she's 18 now. She's a 
completely different person in a completely different place. And last we heard about her, she was pregnant with Donald Franks's child. So what ha- like what happened? Did she have a baby? Is she not? Like what happened? Well, again, you're right. She was it's now she's eight over 18. She in fact had terminated the pregnancy at some point and she was a little older and you know, she at the time when she was 16 when we first interviewed her, she was definitely a naive young uh, woman. And, you know, Donald Franks was a manipulator, and he sort of manipulated her into the position that she was. I think it wasn't until years later that she finally realized that, that not only did he manipulate her, you know, sort of was this get-over guy that would tell her that he was a rock star, and he had his own condominium, and you got to come down and live with me in this condominium, but... She realized that all of that was just BS. Yeah, she was, you know, naive, sixteen. I mean, like, yeah, you're when when you're that young, you're you're dumb. You do dumb things and you believe people, and you know, you're you're just. I feel like you're more susceptible at that point to believing and, bullshit. And, and, there could have, and there could have been some fear factor involved. I mean, here here it is that she she's now part of a murder. And not only that, she's pregnant. Right. right? So she's pregnant with this guy's child and she's probably thinking like, oh, that means something and I need to like listen to this person <laughs> and, you know, kind of follow them if, you know, you ever think that you're going to have a child with them. I don't know. Right. But I, that I adds think another element. She, she came across as a good witness at trial. Uh, even though there were some inconsistencies in her testimony, it was clear. Yeah, I mean, like, straight up, I think she did a... I don't think maybe she didn't participate in the murder, but, you know, she did some shady, shitty stuff. She helped cover up the murder. She, she paint And she admitted to that. And, I mean, she's not innocent, but yes, again, 16, naive, Right. you know. And ultimately, uh, you know, we had to deal with her at the end of the Franks trial as well. So what did she testify about that night? What she testified was that they're at the condominium, and she's under the impression that the condominium is Donald Franks's condominium. And somewhere around 10 o'clock that evening, the headlights pulled into the parking lot for the space of, of the, the condominium. And Donald Franks immediately said, "You got we got to get out of here. They gathered up all their stuff, and they went outside and they hid in the woods until all of the lights went out in the condominium and it's at that point that she said that Donald Franks then entered into the condominium and was in there for a period of time and then came out and got her and brought her into the condominium and it's at that point that she realized that he had murdered Andrea Haley. So once she realizes that this murder has taken place, Franks has her help him get rid of the body. They wrap up the body in a mattress pad and a blanket. She testifies that they drag it from the upstairs bedroom downstairs. And the most unbelievable thing happens while she's testifying about the disposal of the body. In the courtroom, Donald Franks laughs as she describes how they dragged the body down the stairs. What the heck? And... I'm just get I'm getting goosebumps just even remembering it now, and the jury just stopped and stared, and there was a silence in the courtroom. And I remember what I did is that I didn't ask any questions. I just let that silence sit there, 
and I turned and I looked at Frank's as if my looks could say, what are you doing? That must have been so intense because he's laughing and what Kimberly is talking about is the disposal of a body that he just murdered. And like, I feel like his laugh says it all. And um, I feel like, though, he probably was doing it to, like, get her attention or something. You know what I mean? Because she's going up there. She's testifying about this all going down. And he's probably thinking, like, I don't know. I just feel like that's, like, an attention move, too, for her. Like, he he did it while she was speaking. It's so weird. And it certainly was, you know, a dramatic point of the trial. And I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be the defense attorney's who were representing him when that happened because they all felt it too. I am telling you, I, I can't even imagine being this guy's defense attorney. Not only did he <laughs> did he write you letters, not only did he give an interview in the newspaper, but then he wrote letters to you and now he's laughing in court while they're discussing about how they disposed of a body. Yeah, I would I would probably not be very happy with my client at that point in time. Right, so she testified. And again, I thought she made a good witness during the course of the trial. Did she mention anything else of importance? Well, she did. She, you know, told what they did after they placed the body in the trunk. Once they put the body in the car, it was Frank's idea to write a note to explain why Andrea Healy was not around. And so Frank's had to write a note which said that Andrea Healy had taken a trip to Canada and that she wouldn't be back for a couple of weeks. Or ever. Or ever, exactly. You know, we thought that was kind of suspicious, and she confirmed that, you know, she had written a note. But we also had the real estate agent who was selling the condo for Andrea Healy come in and testify that she was familiar with Andrea Healy's handwriting, and the note was definitely not written by Andrea Healy. And what other important witnesses did you present at the trial? Well, I brought Andrea Healy into the courtroom. Hmm, how did you manage to do that? Well, remember we had the three 911 calls that she made to the Tinton Falls Police Department. The initial call was to say that Donald Franks had been evicted from her condominium and that he wasn't allowed to be there and that it's at that point where the dispatcher indicated that she should come down and file a burglary charge. Second call was that you know, I'm here. Nothing seems to be out of place. Maybe he wasn't here, but I'm here now. Mm-hmm. And then what probably happened is that she thought about it for a minute or two. And within a couple of minutes, there was another call back. She probably like walked around her condo and was like, no, he's definitely been here. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you can tell when things are just not how they should be. Right? Yeah, I think that, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, they had left that apartment in a, in a rush. Mm-hmm. So at first blush, as you walk in, you probably think everything's okay. But then all of a sudden you say, well, you know, that's not right. So she made a third call back to the police. And the third call was, listen, why don't you send a police officer over and let me file a complaint against Donald Franks. And a police officer ultimately showed up. However, by then the condo was dark and he thought that she may have gone back to North Jersey and uh, he rang the doorbell, knocked, but there was no answer. In reality, what had happened is she had already been killed by Donald Franks. Right. Why do you think it was impactful or why do you think you needed to play those tapes at the trial? Well, see, it's very rare in a homicide case where you have evidence which comes directly from 
the person who's been killed. And it was relevant to the case, and the reason why I was able to get it in, because it went directly to the burglary charge. The defense had contended that, you know, the burglary charge did not exist because he was allowed to be there. The first phone call was clear that she did not want him there, that he had been kicked out, and that he was not allowed or authorized to be there. And the other two calls were to show that, you know, there still was, you know, a, a reservation in her mind about maybe whether or not that was true. But then on the third call, when she said, you better send a police officer over there, it was clear that she was definitely going to file a God, complaint. It's so unfortunate. Like if that cop was only just there, you know, sooner, or if she had made a call sooner, or... Yes. Her life could have been saved. It's just, it's really crazy to think about that. It is, it is. Um, and now, I mean, that, you know, I the, the police officer, Jerry Turning, who I know very well, was a sergeant at the time. He testified at the trial. And I know he was visibly upset about the fact that he was too late. Right. So, yeah, so that was just really horrible, unfortunate timing. Absolutely. So we don't hear from Donald Franks at all during this trial. Like, how was he during it? Well, you know, he was, I would say, not a very good client for the defense. He was making faces at some times. He was having, uh, making sounds, laughing on occasion, and uh, doing cer- certain things that I don't think were things that I would want my client to be doing if I was trying to save him from the death penalty. And then ultimately it came down to whether or not they were going to call him as a witness. And it was reported in the press that there was a 45-minute heated argument between Donald Franks and his lawyer about whether or not he would testify, that it was an obscenity-laced, strong argument that he wanted to testify. And his attorney, Tom Scully, you know, a very fine attorney, head of the public defender's office in Monmouth County, was arguing with him and, quite frankly, yelling that if you testify, you're going to die. You're going to face the death penalty. And ultimately, Franks decided not to testify. Probably for the best. So what did the jury decide in this case? After summations where Tom Scully argued that this was not a murder, that this was a fight, and that they should convict him of something less than murder. Uh, And I argued that this was a planned killing, that Donald Franks planned to rob her, kill her, take her car, take her credit cards, take the ring off her finger, which he sold for $27.04, that he committed all of the crimes alleged in the indictment. Murder, felony murder, burglary, theft, and possession of that steak knife to kill Andrea Healy. The jury went out, did not reach a verdict on the first day. Uh, They came back the second day, and so after maybe almost 12 hours, 13 hours of deliberations, they came back with a guilty verdict on all counts. Awesome. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Sounds sounds well-deserved for that one. Then we go into the penalty phase, no? And we've never had the chance to discuss this on the podcast. Can you kind of explain what the penalty phase is and how you prepare for it and... And more or less, how do you convince a jury to send a man to his death? So this is my first time doing a penalty phase. But as a prosecutor, you've got a job to do. Uh, But it's not an easy thing, Mariah. I'm telling you right now to sit and be the person that is asking 12 other people to put somebody to death. So what do you have to do to prepare for a penalty phase? Well, 
as we discussed, I've tried a death penalty case before, but I did not reach the penalty phase. So this was the first time that I was going to try the penalty phase in a death penalty case. And the jury knows what my aggravating factor is, is that this was a felony murder and the underlying aggravating factor of burglary was something that I had proven at trial. But you have to prepare for what the mitigating factors are in the case. And that's what the defense is bringing to the table. They're showing mitigating factors. Reasons why you should not give someone the death penalty, the mitigating factors. And the death penalty phase is supposed to begin immediately after the jury returns the verdict. I think the jury came back with a verdict on Friday and the death penalty mitigating factors were not delivered to me on Friday when they were supposed to. But the judge gave the defense until Monday to deliver the mitigating factors. So over this weekend, I wasn't too sure as to what the mitigating factors. I kind of guessed, you know, I kind of had a good idea. But on Monday, I was supplied the mitigating factors, and then we started the penalty phase on Tuesday. The mitigating factors were he was had some type of mental disease or defect, which affected his ability to know the wrongfulness of his conduct, that he was 19 years of age, that he was under the influence of some type of drugs or alcohol, and the fact that he had a horrible childhood. So now I knew that I would be listening to witnesses, probably a psychiatrist, the social worker. Mm-hmm. So I had to retain a psychiatrist to examine him as well mm-hmm. once I got the mitigating factors. So the social worker was one of the defense's witnesses in the penalty phase, and I described that in the first episode, which of this two-part, which is just the abuse he endured and the substance abuse that took place. So how did you kind of rebuttal that? Like, what did your witnesses say? Well, again, they presented the social worker and the psychiatrist. So it was sort of like a dual mitigating factor, one about the childhood, one about the substance abuse, and one about the mental defect. So what I did is I I utilized uh, Dr. Timothy Michaels, who was a psychiatrist from Philadelphia, who I had used before in cases. And, you know, I got him to quickly go over and interview Donald Franks. And it was clear from his interview that he felt that Donald Franks was just a manipulator and a wise guy and tried to do things the way that he wanted them to be done. He showed no remorse. He showed little or, or no empathy for Andrea Healy. And, and he was a person who uh, didn't have any underlying mental defect, but just was antisocial. He was an antisocial personality and did things just because he wanted to do them. Hmm. All right. So like when the juries, when the penalty phase ends and you've both presented your cases, what are the juries discussing? Because like... What is the other option besides death here? Is It's either death or what? Well, once you're convicted of murder, you face a man in New Jersey, you face a mandatory term of at least a minimum of 30 years in prison. Okay. So a jury would decide whether or not the death penalty should be imposed. If they don't decide it, or if they decided it should not be imposed, then you have this life sentence with a minimum of 30 years. So they have to weigh the aggravating factor versus the mitigating factors. And if any one of the juror finds a mitigating factor, or all of them find it, then that aggravating factor has to outweigh any mitigating factor or all of them beyond a reasonable doubt. And unless all 12 of them come to that 
conclusion, then there is no death penalty. Okay. So, so that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So what did they decide? So in this case, you know, obviously Tom Scully argued to the juror that all of these factors uh, applied and you should not impose the death penalty. And I argued that Donald Franks tells you that he deserves the death penalty. And ladies and gentlemen, give him what he deserves, is what I told them. I asked them to come back with a death penalty verdict because that is what is warranted in this case. The jury went out and they were out for, I think, over four hours. And they came back and told the judge that they were deadlocked. They could not decide which penalty to impose. And if they cannot decide that the death penalty is the appropriate penalty, then it's an automatic life imprisonment with at least 30 years. And that is what uh, ultimately he was sentenced to. Wow. So that was how long ago? That was uh, 1990, and he was in jail since May of 1998. So he's been in jail now 30 um, two years, mm-hmm. um, because he had this, the other charges that he was convicted of as well. So he got some additional time there and he's eligible for parole in May of 2021. Wow. So almost 33 years to the day that Andrea Healy was murdered, he will be eligible for parole. He'll be eligible to be released from prison <laughs> at that time. That's, so... Wow, that's pretty crazy. That's soon. That's... Well, it's, it's yeah, it is. It is kind of, um, you know, ironic and that we're doing this show and, and it's next year he'll be eligible for parole. Wow. So, I mean, he doesn't get the death penalty and... I, I mean, I don't know really how I feel about the death penalty. It's, you know, obviously a very uh, controversial subject, but, I mean, how did Andrew Healy's loved ones feel about him not getting the death penalty? Well, they were in court every day during this long trial. Um, when the death penalty was not imposed, I remember that Andrea's sister was in the audience and she started to cry. Mm-hmm. And then her parents were there who were, you know... I say elderly, probably, you know, my age now. <laughs> um, they were very upset because Franks had taken their daughter away from them, taken the mother of their grandchildren away from them. He gave her no choice. And the jury, in their view, had given him a choice mm-hmm. that he would be spared the death penalty. And ultimately, you know, at some point would be released from prison and they just quite didn't understand it. And, you know, I can understand absolutely their position. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can empathize with them and, you know, I've never been in that situation, so I can never ever say how I would feel, but I, I, I do understand their heartbreak in that, in that that a loved one was taken away from them and now this man can potentially be free at some point. That's, that's a really tough pill to swallow. And, and, I, I came to uh, the realization after trying this death penalty case and going to the penalty phase and asking 12 people to put someone to death that there are no winners 
in death penalty cases. Um, if you if you succeed in having the death penalty imposed, you still have Andrea Healy as a victim and is dead. And you know there will be some sense of justice, at least from the family's perspective, that the death penalty was imposed. But when all is said and done, um, Donald Franks, who did not get the death penalty, was significantly removed from society for a good portion, if not most of his life. And Andrea Healy is still dead. Mm -hmm. So I think my comment when they asked me at the end of the case, you know, Bob, what, what was it like? I said, it, it was a very debilitating process to try these type of cases. And when it's over, no one wins. Yeah, what a tragic, tragic story. Um, and I think we'll end it there. I mean, there's no winners. There's nowhere else to go. So <laughs> right. thanks, Dad, for telling us this tragic tale about Andrea Healy and Donald Franks. Thank and you, yeah, of course. Um, please send us an email at familycrimecast at gmail.com. And when we say send us an email, I want to hear from our listeners what you want to hear from us. Also, I just want to hear what you guys think, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, uh, anything that you have to say. We'd love to send an email and maybe we'll do a little thing where we read your emails on here. I think that could be fun. Yeah, we, we kind of like some of the reviews we're getting, so yeah. let's, let's, let's get some more cards and letters coming in as they used to say but now it's email <laughs> yeah now it's email um all right well thank you so much for listening i love you right i love you too dad